Hi, everyone. This is John and TJ. Welcome to Season 3 of ALN Math Talk. Math Talk is where we answer your questions about online lessons, math learning, and the meaning of math. Please help us spread our all-learners mission of cultivating a community of educators that promote math equity and inclusion for all students. Please check out our website, alllearnersnetwork.com. We have some free resources and uh, free math professional development opportunities, as well as for uh, purchase uh, opportunities under the events tab. We are recording this in uh, early November of 2022, and we now have events through January uh, live on our site. And some are free, yeah? Yes, they are. Great. Well, today we are joined by Dr. Amanda Mandy Jansen, a professor from the University of Delaware and author of the book, Rough Draft Math. Welcome, Mandy. Uh, tell us a little bit, this is our first question about your math background and your journey. How'd you end up where you are now? Where I am now is as a professor, teacher, educator, I teach future elementary and middle school teachers, and I get to collaborate with teachers and learn about improving teaching from them. Um, but, you know, I used to be a middle school math teacher. I used to teach seventh grade, eighth grade, and ninth grade in Mesa, Arizona, and Mesa is a suburb of Phoenix, yeah. And I only taught for three years. I went to graduate school full-time because I thought that would be a way to pay for my master's degree if I said I would be in a PhD program, and but then maybe not finish the PhD. But it turned out I really loved doing research too because you get to spend a lot of time reflecting on people's thinking and making sense of it, but in ways that are still very connected to the classroom. But as a math student, I, I was one of those students that was good at math because they could do the problem quickly and get the answer quickly. And um, I really got frustrated when I was in high school calculus and the teacher stood up in front of the room and said, teaching math is so easy. All you have to do is turn the page and read the examples from the book and you're set. You don't even have to do much to prepare. And I thought to myself, <laughs> Yeah. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's why I'm tutoring some people in the class. So I decided it was kind of my mission to try to understand why math teaching was not that easy, actually, like what was challenging about it. And I thought I would, you know, try to become a teacher to learn more about why teaching is more than working out the examples, right? Oh my gosh, that hurts my heart when you say that, right? And and I know, I know it's absolutely true. I hear that very uh, often I hear that as well. So at the All Learners Network, we talk a lot about all means all. We want to really focus on all kids, not just some kids. Um, so when you hear that, what do you think about when you think about teaching math so all learners can learn? I think about what it's like when math class starts or when you walk into a math classroom and how you feel as a learner when you walk in that room, right? Are you in a space where your full humanity is seen and recognized? Are you in a space where your ideas are assumed to have strengths and assets? Are you in a space where everyone's ideas are valued and built upon? Um, what does it mean to teach math so that all students' brilliance are recognized and seen and elevated? That's really one thing I think about. Yeah, us too. Um, sometimes 
the brilliance is less um, obvious, but that's one of the things teachers really need to look for. You know, we're, we're as a profession, we're pretty good at identifying what kids don't know. We're far less good at recognizing and building on what they do know and how they do think about these things. Yeah, I've started to think about it like if it's hard for me to see the brilliance in someone's thinking, I've started to think about that as a problem with me. How, yeah, yeah how am I not able to recognize what they're um, contributing? How is my thinking limited about the mathematics and about the students? And, um, you know, we don't need to locate the problem in the kids. They have a lot of great insights and they're doing their best, right? To try to make sense out of things. And they teach us a lot. So I'm trying to orient myself in that direction. Yeah, that reminds me, uh, when I went to grad school in New York, um, I learned an awful lot. You know, I'm a Vermonter here and from a very small town. And then I went to school in Manhattan and um There was a lot that I had to learn there. But one of the most impressive shifts for me um, had to do with this idea of deficit mindset. You know, we we got an article, which is pretty famous, called The Million Word Gap, about the, the fact that upper middle class kids come to kindergarten with having heard a million more words than poor kids. And this is considered an explanation for why poor kids often are behind in school. And I loved the way New York teachers completely judo flipped that idea by saying, you know, every kid comes to school with five years of experience and it's the school's job to be ready for the child. Right. The child doesn't have to fit into a particular mold. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about when you're talking about the brilliance of every learner is the school has to be prepared to meet the learners uh, where they are if we're really going to educate every child. I absolutely agree with that. And you're also talking about, you know, not thinking about student data as achievement gaps, but more like opportunity gaps, right? And the schools need to, you know, orient ourselves to build on what the students are bringing. And and the schools can change in response to those strengths and resources and funds of knowledge that the kids are bringing. So I love that. So Amanda, you are author of Rough Draft Math, and I'd love to hear a little bit about how did that come about? What was kind of the, the origin of that idea? And how did it turn into a book? Oh, thank you so much for asking. So (laughs) Rough Draft Math, what I love about it is the origins come from a teacher study group. I had the opportunity to work with a teacher study group of middle school and high school teachers in Delaware. We were really all invested in creating classrooms where students were engaging in exploratory talk. Exploratory talk was a word I learned from um, a researcher, Douglas Barnes. But the idea here is classroom conversations can be experienced by students as a place where they're supposed to perform what they know or what they don't know. That might be how people feel in a discussion. But I think as teachers, what we really want is for the interchange of ideas and for people to explore ideas together and for us all to learn from each other as we share to make this exploratory space. 
So in this study group, we were working on that, how to create exploratory classroom discussions in math. And, and we read chapters from a book called Exploring Talk in School. And we tried to brainstorm different ways to make our classroom environments more exploratory. And the teachers in the study group said, why don't we call this rough draft talk instead of exploratory talk? Because that term might mean more to, you know, secondary, middle school and high school kids have heard about rough drafts before in language arts. And so just saying, let's do some rough draft talking kind of meant something to them right away. And, and it wasn't a heavy lift to try to help the students know what you meant. So then what we did was we generated video, Te different teachers tried out something in their classroom in the name of what they thought rough draft talk could be. And, you know, it's just an idea. There's not one specific thing to do. What do we do to invite rough drafting and revising into math class? And so we would show each other video of what rough draft would look like in our classroom. And everyone was doing something slightly different. And so together we sort of built this larger set of ideas. So one idea of rough drafting is create a culture where we assume everyone's initial ideas have value your draft ideas are worth sharing. It doesn't even matter if you're done. What's on your mind right now? What are you thinking about? So creating a culture where all that, that sort of thinking is welcome. Another aspect could be making sure students are having opportunities to publicly share their thinking and reason with one another. Another aspect could be, how are we inviting students explicitly to revise? So I came at rough drafting from the idea of creating a thinking environment where students are sharing their ideas in any stage. And one thing that surprised me by some of the teachers' videos were they were building in these revision experiences. And I had to laugh because, of course, rough drafts need to be revised. But that wasn't the assumption I had coming in. And so another big way that my learning grew from the teachers I was collaborating with was different ways that teachers would incorporate revising more explicitly into math class. So really rough draft math just comes from talking with teachers. What if we thought about math class as a space where we engage in rough drafting and revising? What would we do? And why would we do it that way? So different folks have tried on different practices and ideas in the name of rough draft math. And then we share them with each other and it builds out. We have an article that was published at the end of 2016 in math teaching in the middle school. And I thought, okay, cool. We shared what we learned and we're done. But people kept sharing more and more ideas. And so a book was a way to continue to grow and expand in our thinking. And to me, it's a nice example of revising as expanding so one way that we can revise our thinking is that our ideas keep growing and we make new connections, which is very different from correcting something that's wrong. Yeah, I anyway. I, I also like the idea that uh, of books over articles because it really gives you a chance to explore the idea. The, the two places where I really connected with your ideas in Rough Draft and Math had to do with the sequence that we talk about in terms of how conceptual math is developed. You know, there's a problem, there's, you get stuck in a problem, and there's this productive struggle. And that discourse that you're talking about, how students share their thinking, that's really helpful in leading 
speaking to a moment of insight, right? So the mathematical insight is the moment of conceptual understanding. The real strength I see in the kinds of things you were talking about has to do with this next stage, because if you have a moment of insight of new math understanding and you don't have the opportunity to play with it, to reflect on it, to talk about it, to revise it, then it's just this happy memory. Oh, I solved this puzzle. And now what's next? But that opportunity to talk about dialogue, revise, write, think, that's really how a new idea becomes embedded in prior knowledge. It becomes part of a matrix of new understanding. And I, I really appreciated the techniques that you're talking about to facilitate that process. I think that's right. One of the reasons why I think rough drafting and revising in math class resonates with people is that it connects with maybe our experience of figuring out a math problem ourselves or how we learn anything, really. We have to try, put it out there, reflect on what we did, learn from other people's efforts, and then keep building gradually. It's not as if we either know it or we don't. It's a continuous, gradual process. And what can we do to intentionally, in our math classrooms, communicate that to students, intentionally build in those gradual learning opportunities for students, just to have just more authentic learning spaces in ways that communicate to students, normalize. You're going to try, you're going to try again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's yeah, so that much... it's not a done process, right? Sorry. It, it, that's okay. It's so much of a culture. I'm so glad you talk about the culture in a classroom because if you have a culture where it's okay to not have the right answer, but to have this nugget of an idea and it's going to be put out there and there's no you know, critical judgment about it, there might be some comments or some ideas or building off of, but that whole idea that that I can share this really does open up the the kind of learning community and that space to all students because if I if it's not high stakes I can say my idea um, and I, I always talked with students a lot about editing their thinking so like facilitating a number talk and someone would would put out an answer that was wrong and then they'd kind of hear other people's thinking on a different answer and be like oh i, I want to change my mind I, I actually think it's this now because so i would always say oh you want to edit your thinking well we do that in writing it's okay why should we not be able to edit our thinking in math yeah we used to have a sign on the wall that said i used to think but now i think and so I that that was a thing that students would embrace. Well, because essentially you're trying to change the nature of what people think math is, which I think is what the whole movement is trying to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I did a really interesting little study in New York where we asked kids to draw pictures of professional mathematicians. And I would say, what do you think a professional mathematician does? And fascinatingly, well, unsurprisingly, right? They all sort of looked like Albert Einstein. They had <laughs> wild hair. Glasses. They, all, they had lab coats. They were always white guys. Right. 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 Um, and the overwhelming answer when you ask a kid, what does a professional mathematician do? Was that there was some big honking math book mm. that had really hard problems in it. And they got paid to like do homework in that math book on a daily basis. 
like the creativity, oh. the inspiration, the die, all the things that we know are actually part of Finally. what math. Yes. Right. Had nothing to do with kids' perceptions of, or parents for that matter, of what math is. Yes, I really want people to think about math as a way to make sense of anything going on in the world around them and that they have the capabilities of being able to make sense of the world through math. Yeah. I, I wonder if either of you have this experience, but in my personal life, I don't hang out with a lot of, you know, when I'm just with my family and friends, there's not a lot of other mathematicians. And, and they always, they just have no sense of like, I, they don't understand what I do, first of all. And second of all, they, they don't get that piece that you just said that like, they're making sense. My brother thinks he's really bad at math, but he, he does tile floors and he's doing all these like fractions. And I'm like, you're, you're doing a ton of math just to be able to do your job. But he, he doesn't see that as doing math. It's just, it's so bizarre to me. Uh, yeah. Mandy, you got Dr. Robert Berry to write the introduction to your book. I would love to hear that story. How did that happen? Oh, um, Robert and I have known each other for multiple decades. We were both coming up as doctoral students at around the same time in the early 2000s, and we met at a conference. Our advisors were doing a research symposium at, I think it was the NCTM Research Conference, and we became friends, and we've just been connected through the field ever since and, you know, follow each other's research and ideas. And Robert has a summer program for Black boys and um, they're engaging in problem solving and he's uh, helping us learn about their brilliance through his work in lots of ways. And he, he learned about rough draft math and he um, incorporated rough drafting and revising into a routine that he was doing with his students in the summer. And he incorporated rough draft math into uh, one of the talks he was giving when he was NCTM president. And he taught me how rough drafting and revising was useful in his context. So I was really honored and excited that Robert found the work useful and I learned from his perspective. And so to me, it was a natural fit because it was another colleague that was using drafting and revising with their learners, but also the personal connection of somebody that I've been friends with for such a long time and admired. It was an honor to me that he was willing to share her thoughts in the intro. It's very personally meaningful. That's great. Yeah, you were kind of in a hotbed. Michigan has some amazing thinkers in math education. I went to graduate school at Michigan State University with a lot of amazing folks, um, you know, connected math projects located at oh. Michigan State. I love I love this story about uh, I heard Glenda tell it one time about how they didn't really think it was going to be a thing like it was just their little project and had no idea that it would become a large yeah yes I had the fortune of opportunity of conducting my dissertation work in some connected math classrooms and talk about helping us learn about what mathematics can be right learning through problem solving the there's amazing curricula out there and connected math is one of them for sure yeah i had one of the one of the more emblematic conversations with parents about connected math uh i was down in southern vermont and the interesting thing about parent nights for me is there's always a group of parents who are good at math who are there to tell you how you're messing up their kids well Everybody's there to tell you how they're you're messing up their kids. 
this one particular guy, he brought the one of the connected math books with him. And he's like, how the hell can you call this a math textbook? And I'm like, okay, so tell me more about that. He goes, there's no explanations in here. It's just problems. And I was like, okay, well, that's a really interesting place to start this conversation, right? I often say that if parents are kind of stuck of, I don't know what's going on in my student's math classroom or my child's math classroom, I'm like, well, they can probably teach you. <laughs> Ask your students what they know, what they've been learning. Like they can help you see the explanations themselves. Yeah, I, I noticed that you're, you're a middle school or a junior high teacher and you do um, prep for elementary teachers. And I, I have sort of the reverse experience with that. Um, so we have an ongoing conversation here at All Learners about middle school and elementary school because we, our perception is that there are some differences in the teachers and in the students in those populations. And I wondered if you had anything you might want to share about that. Well, one of the reasons why I was drawn to middle school when I was teaching is that it's such a transitional time in students' lives learning about who they want to be going through adolescence. Students are starting to question their capabilities. And I thought it was just a really important environment to nurture their identities. At the same time, the mathematics starts to get into more of algebraic thinking, and that can be a time where we lose some people. So I was thinking um, middle school more for that space. But, you know, working in elementary classrooms, there's a different degree of willingness to take academic risks when the kids are younger, you know, Whereas in middle school, you want to make sure they're they're feeling safe and not feeling judged and all these things. And, and when I'm in elementary classrooms, the students are so on fire with wanting to share their ideas. So that's one contrast I notice. I don't want that to go away in middle school, right? Yeah, we also find that uh, we're having a lot of conversations about high school right now because we work with three or four high schools. But when we engage with high schools, it's always the principals or curriculum directors who call us up and say, can you work with high schools? It's almost never the high school teachers that are interested in pedagogy and making instructional shifts. And I wondered if you had any insight into reaching that population. I um, It's always this holy grail question of how do we bring more people on board into you know, dedicating ourselves to understanding students thinking. But I've had the great fortune of connecting with a lot of high school teachers in Delaware. They're invested in that. And um, maybe it's sub communities of teachers. Like if there's a teacher at one school who's curious, maybe it's connecting them with a teacher at another school who's curious and building up the network that way, putting people in touch with each other so the ideas can ripple. But yeah, it's a, it's a really challenging question. Mandy, for anyone in our vast listener audience who maybe <laughs> hasn't heard of rough draft math before or, or isn't teaching in that way, what are some suggestions or ideas you might have for an individual teacher or a whole school that is is wanting to move in that direction but but hasn't yet? Like what what first steps, what concrete actions could they take that would kind of send them on this path? 
tend to think about beginning our rough draft math journey in two directions. One is around the culture of the classroom and the other is about what does revising look like in math class. So in the culture of the classroom, it's about talking with students about what we think learning even is and what their role is in that space. Mm -hmm. Everything from you could ask students to brainstorm, what if we use rough drafts in math class? What would that look like? Why would we do that? How would that make you feel? Having um, conversations and reflections about that and building up together with their students about what rough drafting could be. Even just the moment of telling someone, if you do nothing else, tell your students, it's okay. You can just share your rough draft thinking. That move alone, it kind of pops the pressure balloon and ideas start popping up more. So that's one small thing you can do. Um, other spaces around classroom culture, I've heard folks uh, really value a concept called rights of learners. Olga Torres is a teacher in Tucson, Arizona. And my friend Crystal Craig in San Antonio introduced me to the idea of rights of learners. So introducing students to the idea of you have the right to be confused when you're learning anything. You have the right to make mistakes. You have the right to say things in ways that make sense to you. Mm. You have the right to revise your thinking, letting students know that they have those rights. You expect them to do those things. This is what learning is about. And they could be reflecting on what would this look like? What would this sound like? When am I observing someone enacting their rights? What right do I want to claim today in this moment? And, and asking students periodically to notice and build, and you can build a larger set of classroom rights together, what rights we want to have in this space. So there's all these different dimensions of the classroom culture and incorporating reflection intentionally. So students would journal or talk about their experiences about enacting their rights and and that sort of space. But teachers have lots of good ideas for culture building, but connecting to drafting and revising explicitly with that. But then the other space is, how can we create moments where we ask students to revise their thinking? And it can happen in small ways, like at the end of a classroom discussion where you've made students thinking public and you've compared and contrast different solutions and found connections between them, Ask students now, write your next draft of your thinking based on what you heard in this discussion. How has your thinking grown and changed? What helped your thinking grow and change? It's a little, just a few minute moment where students then would then reflect on what they got out of that dialogue. So you could do that. You can also think about ways that you can integrate revising into the structure of your um, learning experience for students. Um, if you're giving tests in your class, do you have students revise their tests? Um, do you do any sort of portfolio assessment where students look across the unit and bring out pieces of their best work and then reflect across the unit how their thinking grew and changed? How can you build into the structure of your learning experience so that students can really see that revising is expected and normal and also celebrate growth? over performance? How is your thinking grown rather than how you're performing at a specific moment in time? It's really about kind of changing how we think about uh, the function of learning, right? The function of learning is to grow and, and incorporate new ideas. It's not to get an A. And right? so uh, I think there's lots of work for us in the education world to do in that space for sure. 
I know for me, I got asked a question a few years ago by some teachers at an event and, and they said, well, how do you make sure your assessment practices are in line with the vision of learning you're trying to promote among your students? And that threw me on a loop for years. <laughs> Because I wondered, right, um, how I was setting up my own assessment practices here at the university, and was I undermining what I was trying to promote about constant evolution of our thinking, and it's in the growth. And I've moved my um, pedagogical methods class toward uh, self-assessment and ungrading, and that's allowed my future teachers to tell me about here's what I've learned and how I've learned it. And here's evidence of the growth in my thinking. And what I've found to be amazing about that is that I'm learning more because I'm not trying to fit my learners into a specific rubric or fit my learners into achieving the specific outcomes I had in mind because teaching is such a complex activity, right? And if the future teachers are getting something different than maybe than I intended, that's information for me too. And so I, I think also it's hard when you're teaching maybe seventh grade to do that, but I actually got the bravery to do this because a seventh grade teacher in Delaware was doing self-assessment with her students. So it's an open question for me. How do the structures of our learning experiences, assessment, and otherwise communicate our values to students? Yeah, I, so, I, that's a question that I'm always perplexed by also. In fact, I usually punt because from my point of view, assessment is always for the purpose of instruction, right? It's It always informs what's coming, how you want to interact, the choices you make. And so this- How we respond, right? How you respond. Course. So the notion that I have to pin a kid on a continuum, and, and yet, you know, if, if we were sitting in a room with a hundred teachers, they would say, yeah, that's all very good. And we have to fill out these report cards. And how the hell do we do that with any kind of integrity, given what you're telling us? I'm, I find that very challenging, honestly. Some of the things you were talking about, Mandy, made me think of Howie Wah and the stuff he does. I know he's put out a lot, like when you're doing an assessment, like just take five minutes and look it over and talk with a neighbor and have do you do any of those things have you connected I with him absolutely do that how is the best um yes this notion of so what you're talking about tj is the moment when um how he suggests take the first five minutes of any assessment no pencils or writing utensils in your hands talk with your group members about the problems why would we do that well, we're promoting collaborative learning all the time. So how can we make sure our assessment practices are in line with the value of learning through collaboration? And it's not that much time, just five minutes, but they get so much out of it. They have really productive, the students have really productive conversations and it reduces stress and anxiety. It's a small move that's brilliant. I really am appreciative that Howie um, gave us that idea. It's been a game changer. Well, John, you talk often about that relaxed curiosity, right? And like, mm -hmm. there's actually, I don't, I hope you can, I don't think you've ever talked about it on one of our podcasts. So maybe this is the perfect opportunity. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm still trying to learn. Yeah, how to, yeah. Well, curiosity. well, there's, yeah, because in order, so we talked a minute ago about the idea of an insight, right? So that's where new conceptual learning comes from is a sudden insight. 
And in order to have a sudden insight, literature is pretty clear that your brain has to be in a very particular state, in an alpha state. And that's we can measure that. Supposedly, people think you can mechanically induce that. Who knows? But the idea is that the brain state that you're looking for for new insight is relaxed curiosity, right? So people connect that with certain kinds of activities like taking a run or driving a car or being in the shower or I'm just waking up or I'm going to sleep. When you've been stuck in a problem and then you have that insight, in order for that cognitive aha moment to happen, your brain has to be in a relaxed and curious state, which is why math anxiety is so problematic for math learners, because your brain waves spin up into high beta levels, and you don't have access to those insights. And unless listeners think that this is woohoo kinds of stuff, um, Mihail Mihai built his entire career around describing this flow state. He describes it as flow. The US government has invested tens of millions of dollars in training people like Navy SEALs particularly to achieve this state in any and all conditions. So a SEAL is taught to achieve this alpha state first on their own, then during exercise, and then in combat simulations because that state provides you access to your absolute best thinking and it also strangely unexplicably connects you to other people whether you're picking up cues from them or there's something broader going on that state is truly important to new insight a matter of fact yesterday somebody was telling me about a famous plutarch quote right a mind is not a hole to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. Beautiful. Yeah. So our version of that is learning isn't accumulative, it's transformative. So when you have a new concept, when you have that insight, you don't just think more, you actually think differently. And that process that you've been talking about, about taking that idea and turning it around and looking at it in a variety of ways, it takes that insight and then it connects it in long-term memory to all kinds of other ideas so that it's retrievable in the future. It's not just a happy memory. I love your connection between flow and um, kind of mathematical creativity. I think that's just right. I mean, flow is the idea of effort and concentration, but coupled with a deep interest and curiosity. And, and we've had these moments where we've just lost track of time because we're just so into whatever we're doing. And for some of us, that's been with math. And, and we want more students to have that experience with math. I think that that's really a beautiful connection. I, I had an amazing moment recently where a future middle school teacher wrote in his journal, I'm just obsessed with trying to understand people's thinking. And I'm like, yep, you're ready to be a teacher. Yeah. I mean, right? Like that flow state for us when we're, wow, this solution and that solution. And, and what you're saying, John, about connections. Sometimes when I think about revising, I really want people to know I'm not about just trying to fix someone's mistake. 
I'm about let's make a connection we never had before. Let's see relationships between strategies we've never seen before. Let's find a different representation that helps illuminate an idea that maybe we didn't see that way before. And we can always revise. Uh, a teacher, I work with a district in Tacoma, Washington, and a sixth grade teacher said to me, we've just dropped the language correct and incorrect from our class. We're just saying everybody's revising. And what I love about that is that you're not positioning these people as correct and these people as incorrect. We're all evolving and changing all of the time. And then students just start to bring their work up and talk about, oh, well, I revised. I originally thought this and now I think this, right? And we're all continuing to revise. And I think that allows us to really position everyone as having strengths to build upon and to position all of us as constantly growing and changing, not about fixing or correcting, none of that. Yeah, we talk about t-shirts and bumper stickers sometimes at AL. Yeah. And the one I want is, I just wanted to say strategies and then the greater than sign and then answers, right? Because yes. people's obsession with the, it happens, we do a lot of work with uh, special education and we teach teachers to do clinical interviews. And one of the things they have a really hard time with in doing a clinical interview is not trying in some convoluted way to get the kid to the right answer. Like the notion that if you understand how they're thinking about it, that's enough. The answer is just sort of a, a check mark. That's a, that's a big shift that has to happen also. What both of you are talking about to me, like when I think of myself as a learner, because I think of myself as a lifelong learner, it's so much more interesting to think about, okay, I can have some ideas and my colleagues or friends could have some ideas and other people I maybe don't know very well have some ideas and, and examining those and looking, comparing. That's so much more interesting and engaging to me than thinking about, I'm just trying to solve this problem and get an answer. So for our learners, like way better way to, to think about educating and engaging students and, and getting them to, to be not hate math, right? Which, which so many adults that I interact with just, just don't like math at all and had just a negative experience. I feel like there's a potential connection here. Like John, what you were talking about and Mandy, what, what you've done, uh, it feels like they, like there's a future project here. What are, what are your, what are your future projects, Mandy? What do you, what do you like? What's, what's on the horizon for you? Any new things you're working on? I have all kinds of work in progress. I have a really amazing data set of high school teachers in Delaware and Arizona, and we've been capturing the ways that teachers are creating engaging instruction for students. Every time we observe them, we gave the students um, a survey at the end of class, and we can track which classes had higher self-reported student engagement. So mapping out different teaching practices that are engaging for students. And a really powerful one happened to be, interestingly enough, when teachers were publicly amplifying the strengths of students in their ninth grade um, classroom, whether it was integrated math one or algebra one and whatever state they were in, more students were reporting um, being more involved in the discussion, even if it wasn't their ideas being amplified, they themselves felt more welcome to participate. And that intuitively feels like it makes sense, right? But to have empirical data where we um, can have observation data about what this looks like when the teachers are amplifying strengths. And then we have the student 
um, responses saying that they were more socially engaged. It's, it's pretty amazing. So I'm, I always have a bunch of research projects going. I have another really great data set that uh, I've met with teachers. My doctoral students and I have interviewed teachers from eight states who have read or participated in professional learning about rough draft math, not necessarily led by me. And these teachers have reflected uh, with us of how they've used rough draft math in their practice in different ways to achieve different goals. So trying to understand different entry points that teachers are having for um, beginning the work of drafting and revising and different stories of their own lives. Um, their stories of themselves as students and then stories about themselves as teachers of why this is a good fit for where they are, of where they've been and where they're going on their journeys as teachers. So that's been really amazing to be able to learn from teachers about that. I just, apropos of nothing, just want to show the support for the fact that you said you have a big data set and you have these rich descriptions. Um, my time in higher ed as a researcher, I found the delineation between those two paradigms just tedious and unworkable. There's so much that can be learned from each one. So uh, oh, thank you so much. Support there. Yes. I I love I'm in I'm starting to transition more into this mixed method space where the quantitative analyses can help us understand trends, but we need the rich description of what's happening with the teachers and the students so we can understand the contextual differences, really see what this is like in action and just make us um, give us the opportunity to uh, connect to what's actually happening. So both approaches can teach us a lot in tandem. Yeah, I was having a conversation, a brief conversation with Doug Fuchs after he came out with those new practice guides because, you know, I mean, the man is a wizard and clearly one, of, one of the most important researchers of our generation. And we got down to this, yes, of course, the teacher makes such a big difference in what's happening. Um, but his complaint was, yeah, but I can't build a model to accurately look at where the differences are. And I was like, you could just go and look, right? You could yes. observe what's going on and build your model from that. Anyway, um, not really, you know, the research into things maybe you and I could talk more about after the podcast. But uh, Mandy, thank you so, so much for being with us. Um, we're going to have to have another conversation, I think. Um, it's so great yeah. to connect with Ma you Mandy, is, before we wrap up, is there anything else that we didn't kind of ask you about or anything you wanted to, to share? Well, I think one idea that's been on my mind is how do we structure teacher learning so teachers can build understanding of concepts about teaching? So when I think about rough drafting and revising with teachers, one thing I really love about it is that it's just an idea. It's it's not something like a specific formula of what to do. And so I feel like the teachers are building what this is over time by trying new things, adding it on. And so just like with students, the way we would have students share their strategies and their thinking about a math problem, and then we would build deeper connections about mathematics, I wonder about treating teacher learning that way, introducing an idea or a problem of practice to teachers and then teachers sharing their strategies with one another. And then as a community, we 
um, work on developing a larger set of connections and practices that support students? What would that look like with teacher learning? That's something I think about. Well, we will have to say we just published an article yesterday on the rapid cycle of inquiry, which is essentially a process that addresses exactly what you just said, problematizing practice with a group of teachers, having them explore, gather data. It's a really important process because if we're walking the talk, right, we have to do with teachers what we're asking them to do as students. Yeah, and it really professionalizes teachers because they're building the knowledge for themselves and honors the brilliance that the teachers are bringing to the practice, right? So um, I just feel like rough draft math really belongs to the teachers that created the ideas that I get to learn about. Love that, love that. Remember, you can find a recording of our podcast at alllearnersnetwork.com and on Spotify or Anchor, search ALN Math Talk, along with free resources like our high leverage concepts, high leverage assessments, high leverage progressions, high leverage t-shirts, belt buckles, and coffee mugs. ALN Math Talk is produced by the All Learners Network, all rights reserved. Executive producers, John, I was just thinking Tapper, and TJ, the designer, Jemison. Spiritual and mathematical guidance has been provided by Robert Fly in the Water, microbrew, stats loving Laird, who reminds us we'd probably be more successful if we just drew a freaking picture. Our theme music was written and performed by Sarah Blair. Please join us next time again for more amazing discussions about interesting math topics and fascinating education books. See you next time.